If you're into podcasts like I am, you may have considered starting a podcast of your own. And what better time than right now? Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show to talk about American history and awesome bourbon, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Take it from me, there's a lot of options out there, and it can be hard to figure out the best option for you. How do you get on podcast directories? How do you monetize? Buzzsprout takes the stress of starting a podcast away by helping you navigate through each step of the process. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how many people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting isn't hard if you have the right partners. Do what I did and join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Follow the link in the episode notes to get started today. Hello, and welcome to Bourbon and History. Topics in History, Episode 1, The Electoral College. Every four years, Americans go to the polls to cast their votes for president. At the end of the night, usually in the wee hours of the morning, the results are announced and a winner proclaimed. Democracy in action. It's how it's been done for the last two centuries, from George Washington in the first presidential election of 1788 to the most recent election of Joe Biden in 2020. But the funny thing about all that is, the American people don't actually elect the president, at least not directly. Because, you see, there's something called the Electoral College that actually elects the U.S. president. You may have noticed over the past few episodes of the Presidential Ranking series that whenever I mention a president's results in an election, I reference their electoral vote total. This is because, if you want to win the presidency, it's the Electoral College you have to win, not the popular vote. In fact, five presidents in U.S. history failed to win the popular vote, but went on to win the election. John Quincy Adams in 1824, Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876, Benjamin Harrison in 1888, George W. Bush in 2000, and Donald Trump in 2016. Today, 270 electoral votes gets you into the White House. That's because there are 538 members of Congress, 100 senators, plus 435 representatives, and three extra electoral votes for Washington, D.C., per the 23rd Amendment, which you divide by two to get the magic number of 270. That's it. A simple majority out of 538 electoral votes wins you the election, not necessarily the will of the people. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why? Why can't we just have a straight up or down vote by the American people to determine who becomes president? Well, there's a few answers to that question, but it basically comes down to the fact that the framers of the Constitution simply didn't trust the American people to make the decision. Voting directly for your representative in Congress or your governor, sure, but for a leader of the entire country, absolutely not. The framers had studied up on historical republics in world history, and they all seemed to have one fundamental problem. They relied too heavily on the so-called will of the people, which inevitably always led to some populist dictator coming to power and then dismantling the entire democratic system they had created. They didn't want that to happen in the United States, 
but they also needed to ensure that American citizens did have at least some say in choosing their leaders. But why the Electoral College? And what is it exactly? Well, let's take a trip and travel back all the way to the 1780s and find out why the weird, vague institution for choosing the president was created and why it's so important today. It's August 1787, and the delegates assembled inside Philadelphia's Independence Hall attending the Constitutional Convention are finally coming back to the issue of the chief executive, which they had been avoiding for the past two months. No one was quite sure how the office of president should be handled. Should there be one or two chief executives? Should they or he be chosen by Congress or the people? How much power should they have? How long should they serve? These questions had been swirling around the convention hall all summer, and a decision had to be made and made soon. It was agreed pretty early on there should be only one chief executive who would be vested with executive powers through the soon-to-be-created office of the presidency. A unitary chief executive would be able to represent the entire nation, which wouldn't be the case with multiple presidents, who would likely only want to serve the interests of their own regions. This view was laid out succinctly by a man named James Wilson, whose ideas would help shape the American presidency more than any other delegate. With the question of how many presidents settled, the topic now turned to how much power this unitary chief executive would have and how they would be elected. Having witnessed the abuses of too much executive authority under King George III of Britain, the former British colonists distrusted a strong chief executive. But they also wanted a strong enough executive that would serve as a check against the legislative tyranny and protect minority rights. So, the idea of Congress electing the president was taken off the table. But then, should the people be allowed to elect the president? Wilson argued yes. He said that only through direct election by the people could the chief executive be independent of both Congress and the states. But Wilson's view was not the majority opinion. Delegates such as Roger Sherman of Connecticut and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts opposed direct election by the people, arguing the people were too fickle and easily manipulated. Now, this viewpoint didn't mean the delegates felt voters weren't intelligent enough to elect their leaders. It was more due to the fact that, in 18th century America, news traveled tediously slow, meaning many voters wouldn't be informed enough about a particular candidate to vote for them. So, on the contrary, the delegates felt the American voter was very intelligent and informed, and absolutely capable of voting for a presidential candidate. A few other suggestions were thrown around, such as having Congress vote for the president, who would serve one seven-year term, but once again, delegates felt this gave too much power to the legislature. Southern delegates proposed election through state legislatures, the way U.S. senators were elected, but again, this reeked of legislative tyranny. With all these ideas being batted around, Wilson came up with a compromise. Knowing direct election was off the table, he proposed what would become the Electoral College. His plan called for the states to be divided into districts in which voters would choose electors who would then elect the president. This compromise would preserve the separation of powers and keep state legislatures out of the selection process. When Wilson offered his compromise plan to the other delegates, they immediately shut it down. Nobody really liked the idea of some random, vague body of men determining who the president would be. And what if a candidate failed to receive a majority of the electoral votes? Many worried contested elections would derail and ultimately doom the plan from the start. And others, such as Governor Morris of Pennsylvania, and yes, Governor was his first name, were there would be intrigue if the president were chosen by a small group of men who met together regularly. 
And so the delegates tabled how the president would be elected and moved on to what the president would actually do. But before doing that, they created a committee to basically figure it out on their own and get back to them later, which is what happened on September 6th, 1787, when the committee, after making a few modifications and tweaks, sent their final electoral college proposal back to the main body of the convention. By this point, after having a little while to chew on the idea, the smaller state delegations generally favored the idea, as it gave them more say in the selection process and prevented the larger states of Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York from simply selecting their favorite sons every four years. As James Madison argued in Federalist 39 during the ratification debates the following year, the Constitution was designed to be a mixture of state-based and population-based government. Congress would have two houses, the state-based Senate and the people-based House. Meanwhile, the president would be elected by a mixture of the two. In Federalist 68, Alexander Hamilton went even further to promote the truly democratic process of the Electoral College, stating that the electors came directly from the people and them alone, and only for the purpose of electing a president. This avoided a party-run legislature or another permanent body that could be influenced by outside or foreign interests before an election. And Hamilton went even farther, articulating in effect the greatest defense of the Electoral College system to this day. He argued that the election for president would play out within each individual state, essentially 13 separate elections, meaning that no corruption in any one state could taint what Hamilton called the great body of the people in their selection. And since no federal office holder could also be an elector, none of the electors would be beholden to any presidential candidate. With the delegates agreeing in principle to having electors select the president and vice president of the United States, the term electoral college does not actually appear in the Constitution and wouldn't be used until 1845, they then had to determine what happened in the event of a tie or if a candidate failed to garner a majority of votes. The delegates decided that, in the event a candidate did not receive a majority of the votes, that the House of Representatives would then select the president. But how would they go about doing this? Smaller states initially balked at this, fearing their underrepresentation would place them at a disadvantage. And so, the delegates agreed that when the House had to select a president, the House delegations of each state would vote as one, giving every state one vote. Problem solved. And for the delegates, that was it. They had created an executive branch consisting of a unitary executive independent of the other three branches of government who would be elected somewhat directly by the people through electors chosen by the state legislatures. Their work complete, they adjourned, sent the Constitution to the states, and waited for ratification. But as with anything, sometimes the original intent and meaning of something doesn't translate well into practice. And that's sort of what happens with the Electoral College. Now, I'm going to read the first part of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 of the Constitution. And I know legal wording can be a little daunting to get through, so try and stick with me here. And see if there is anything that stands out to you that could potentially pose a problem for electing a president. Here it goes. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons— of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for, and the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify, and transmit seal to the seat of government of the United States, directed to the President of the Senate. 
the President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if there be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said House shall in like manner choose the president. Now, I know that's a little tedious to get through and probably even harder to decipher, but essentially Clause 3 states that electors will meet in their respective state capitals and vote for two individuals, one of whom cannot be a resident of their state, so if you're in Virginia, you can cast one vote for George Washington, but your second vote has to be for someone outside of Virginia. They will then compile a list of every person voted for, figure out who got the most votes, seal the ballot in an envelope, certify it, and send it off to the federal capital to be read aloud by the President of the Senate, who will then certify the election and officially declare a winner. Think back to January 6th of this year. The candidate with the most votes becomes president and the runner-up becomes vice president. No problem, right? Well, it would be all right, at least at first. Everyone knew who would be president in 1788, the first year the Constitution went into effect, George Washington. So, in 1788, and again in 1792, Washington coasted to victory because why wouldn't he? In fact, he is the only president to date that won a unanimous amount of electoral votes in two elections. Even though James Monroe did technically win a unanimous election because he ran unopposed in 1820, that elector decided to throw his vote away so that George Washington could be the only president ever unanimously elected. But I digress. But when the election of 1796 came around, there was a little problem with this process, and that problem was political parties. When the Constitution had been written, no one ever dreamed there would be rival parties vying for the votes of the American electorate. Washington himself loathed political factions and had fought hard to prevent their inception in the 1790s. But present they were, and their sudden emergence created a significant problem with the Electoral College. Because in 1796, the Federalist candidate John Adams received the majority of electoral votes, while his political rival and member of the opposing party, Thomas Jefferson, received the second most, meaning men of opposing political parties would now be serving as president and vice president. And imagine today if that were the case. Following the 2020 election, Joe Biden would be president with Donald Trump as his vice president, which, when you think about it, might actually be kind of amusing. But for practicality's sake, this wasn't going to work. But after 1796, people figured, well, maybe this was just an aberration and things will fix themselves in the election of 1800. Well, actually, things only got worse. Because in 1800, after watching the president and vice president of the United States openly fight against one another politically, Thomas Jefferson beat out John Adams in the Electoral College, but not with a majority. Democratic Republicans had cast their votes for Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, but because there was no indication of whether a vote was for president or vice president, both candidates tied at 73 apiece, with Adams getting only 65. This meant that the lame duck Federalist-controlled House would determine the winner. Federalists hated Jefferson and preferred Burr, 
Burr, who was supposed to step aside if this sort of thing happened, decided at the last minute, eh, you know what, I kind of want to be president, and therefore sent the Democratic-Republican spiraling into chaos. It wasn't until the 38th ballot by the House of Representatives over a month after the election that Jefferson was finally elected president. And that was only after Alexander Hamilton's last-minute maneuvering to prevent a constitutional crisis and a Burr presidency. After this, Congress had had enough, and the 12th Amendment was ratified in 1804, which changed the wording of Clause 3 to read, They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president, and they shall make distinct lists of all persons voted for as president, and of all persons voted for as vice president, and the number of votes for each, etc., etc., meaning, yeah, let's make sure we're pointing out who we're voting for from now on. But this new process also changed the way electors were chosen and how they voted. Now, with political parties nominating candidates, slates of electors would be chosen by each state, with whichever candidate winning the most popular votes within a state receiving that state's electoral votes as well. This created what we now know as pledged electors, and it's pretty much the system we have existing today, though there are a few faithless electors from time to time, and we'll get into that in a moment. But essentially, every four years, the people vote for president. Those votes are tallied, and whichever candidate receives the most votes wins that state's electoral votes. Except in Maine and Nebraska, where they do what's called proportional allocation meaning the candidate with the most popular votes will win a majority of the state's electoral votes. But if the other candidate wins the most votes within either of Maine's two congressional districts or Nebraska's District 2, they too will get one electoral vote. A little confusing, yes, but also a little more democratic if you think about it. For example, imagine you are a Republican living in California with its treasure trove of 54 electoral votes. Why bother voting for president when you know a Republican candidate stands little to no chance of winning that state? Same with a Democratic voter living in Texas or South Carolina. Allocating votes the way Maine and Nebraska do would at least guarantee some of those states' electoral votes would be split up, making it a little more competitive across the country. But perhaps that's a debate for another time and another episode. So there it is, the Electoral College system the system designed by the framers to serve as a buffer between the people and the president. In 48 states and the District of Columbia, if you win the most popular votes, you win the electoral votes. And in Maine and Nebraska, you have a chance as the losing candidate to still grab at least one electoral vote from the state's allotment. In most states, the popular vote ballots list the names of the presidential and vice presidential candidates, and after the election, the slate of electors nominated by their respective party and representing the winning ticket will vote for those two offices, and many states require an elector to vote for the candidate to which the elector is pledged, and most electors do regardless, but some faithless electors, I promise I get to that, will occasionally vote for other candidates or refrain from voting, and generally they are then dismissed and a new elector is appointed. Is it the best system? For the most part, yes. Even 200 plus years later, the system is still relevant and serves as the best way to ensure no one region or city in the nation could dominate a presidential election every four years. With a straight-up popular vote, a candidate would only have to campaign in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and maybe a few smaller cities here and there because that's where the majority of the country's population is. Smaller states considered battlegrounds today like Arizona, New Hampshire, and Iowa 
would be irrelevant to a presidential campaign. It's certainly not a perfect situation, and it's had its challenges, but it still remains a proven system and one more Americans should take the time to understand in order to appreciate. And I'll wrap up with a quote from Alexander Hamilton, writing in Federalist 68 during the ratification debates. The mode of appointment of the chief magistrate of the United States is almost the only part of the system of any consequence which has escaped without severe censure or which has received the slightest mark of approbation from its opponents. The most plausible of these, who has appeared in print, has even deigned to admit that the election of the president is pretty well guarded. I venture somewhat further and hesitate not to affirm that if the manner of it not be perfect, it is at least excellent. It unites in an eminent degree all the advantages the union of which was to be desired. 